Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're going to be looking at culture in the vertical and live uh, using Q, our cultural intelligence system, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior. Uh, as you can see, we're in the studio today. Joining me is my fabulous co-briefer, Debra Velasquez. We're also joined by our in-house cultural expert team, Christian Canoli and Edward Faith. And you'll see there's a new and perhaps unfamiliar face uh, next to me, CJ Hunt. CJ, I'm going to let you give your, uh, your best professional title because you you are a multi-hyphenate, it sounds like. Oh, thank you for respecting my hyphen. Um, I've been uh, working in late night for a bunch of years. I've been a, a field producer for The Daily Show. And then I directed a new documentary about Confederate monuments and why they're still around. It's called The Neutral Ground, and it's streaming free on PBS all month. Amazing. Oh, my gosh. Uh, how exciting. So um, CJ is joining us because I think we're uh, going to have a, a conversation that I've been excited to have since we tossed around the um, idea. As you know, last year was the census year. And one thing that I think we all found is that the fastest growing group in the U.S. Uh, when it comes to different, uh, let's call it racial and ethnic subcategories, is people of mixed heritage. And uh, we're all technically people of mixed heritage, right? But some of us, it is more definitional to who we are and how we present ourselves. And today, I think we wanted to look into that today, a little to understand a little bit what it means to be mixed in America. Don't worry, we'll have some global context to this, too, I think. Um, but I'm really excited to, to jump into this conversation because it's one I think uh, everybody both needs to have and we'll be having a lot more as we go forward. So naturally, we put this into our system queue to understand what trends we think are at the heart of this conversation. And I will say what's really interesting about Q, right? Q pulls in all of the available data from the internet. We are looking at tens of thousands of signals. And one of the things that we found is, well, you might assume this is a conversation in many ways about demographics, uh, about policy. Ultimately, a lot of what we get here is a conversation uh, about aesthetics and about media. And that's why you see a couple of these media uh, elements of culture popping here. So camera culture, refreshed classics. Uh, these are all things that come up when we talk about really both figurative and, and literal uh, questions of, of representation. So I thought I'd get that uh, off uh, to, to start. Devery, what other elements of culture here do you think are, are important, both in the media conversation or in the broader, uh, let's call it, um, you know, sociological conversation? I think one that teeters on both is ancient wisdom. Uh, <laughs> I think this it's showing up in the zeitgeist really serves a reminder that uh, ancient truth doesn't have to just be spiritually rooted, but it cannot, or it doesn't have to just be a tactical thing, but it can also be, uh, it should be spiritually rooted as well. Yeah, I love that. And I, I, I think we'll, we'll get to that a little bit in, in the briefing. So let's dive into some of these signals here, because like I said, this is, uh, this is top of mind for, for demographic uh, followers and geeks around the world. You know, um, we know that people who identify as having at least two uh, racial, uh, you know, uh, backgrounds to their, their own identity are the fastest growing group uh, here in the U.S. And I think one question that this means is, well, where does this come from? And, and, and what does it mean practically for, for culture? So the AP here in this article speaks with Rene D. Flores. So Flores is a Mexican-American college professor who in the 2010 census marked their race as white, right? You get those like those 12 or 10 different options. And, uh, you know, Professor Flores just decided to check off uh, white. Quote, since then, a genealogy uh, test revealed uh, that he was... Uh, Sorry, they were 43% Native American ancestry. Uh, he is among millions of people who now identify as having two or more races or being uh, multiracial. Quote, I hesitated before uh, because I did not have the cultural upbringing when I was growing up. There are millions of Americans who feel the same way. 
Now, the AP goes on to note that in the age of easily available DNA heritage testing, I'd be really curious how many people here have done this themselves or have family members who have uh, done that. Uh, this question is popping up more and more, and obviously we want to tag this perhaps to our friends uh, in the DNA testing and heritage uh, industry. Now, indeed, a recent study from Stanford, I thought this was pretty interesting, found that people who have taken DNA tests about their ancestry are just fundamentally more likely to identify as multiracial than people with really similar backgrounds who haven't done the test. So there is kind of this, this consumer culture thing that's making this top of mind. It's not just the fact that people are marrying more outside their race and, and we're producing more, you know, uh, mixed race babies. It's also that people are just more aware of this. So CJ, I'd love to start with you here then. Um, are, we, uh, are, we, we, are we becoming more diverse? Like, is that kind of what's driving this, this census question? Or are we just finally admitting our own diversity? You have a professor who yeah. just figured out that he's, you know, uh, uh, two-fifths uh, Native American, but only just started identifying as multiracial. I'm, I'm curious your take on this data. I mean, I think it's a bunch of things. I, personally, I, I, I mean, it's exciting to be in a room with other mixed folks. And I like the idea that we are moving towards a future where people are, where I have to answer the question less of, what are you? Like, mm-hmm. like just <laughs> selfishly, I want that world. Sure. Um, I also feel like we have, this has been who we have been for decades of becoming increasingly more diverse. And I don't like, since puberty, I've heard, oh, well, you know, everyone's going to be brown by year blank, blank, blank. Right. Right. But I do think that there is, I think almost like we have tools in our language now to be able to understand what whiteness is yeah. and be able to unpack that that is not the norm and and shouldn't be the center of our universe right so people have always understood that that we are that we are a mixed country but even what I found most interesting about that data is that folks who have identified as white yeah. have tools to think about themselves as something other and part of me is like, oh, my God, is this going to be like some of the folks I grew up with who are just white folks who are like, well, my great, 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 mm-hmm. great, great, yes, great yeah, grandmother exactly. is one folk <laughs> Cherokee. Mm-hmm. And you're like, that's a myth, sir. You are a white person and you need to own that. But then also it makes me wonder, like, yes, whiteness is a fiction. Yeah. That people that, that we are all different races and, and different ethnicities. And whiteness is this thing that was given to Europeans to be like, I'm just one thing. Right. So I think whatever... However this conversation moves, the idea that we are able to say that whiteness is a fiction and we are many things, mm-hmm. I think that's a good thing. But so that's funny because I am at the, uh, I and, and perhaps Elizabeth Warren are at the other end of that conversation. <laughs> yeah. I've never taken the DNA testing kits, but my father has. And there was always like a bit of a story that maybe we had some sort of Mediterranean heritage, you know, there was a <laughs> last name that seemed kind of Spanish. Yes. And that test came back and he could not literally have been more Ashkenazi Jewish if he tried, you know? It was just like a photo of Mel Brooks, right? Yeah. And so we kind of had to have this, you know, on this, the, the, you know, the Grinspan side of the family had to have this conversation where we're like, not that we were calling ourselves mixed race at all, I want to be very clear about that, but this story that we had told ourselves a little bit about our heritage turned out to, like, not be true at all, right? And so as people discover, uh, you know, the truth of their ancestry, I think there's, a, there's an important thing for us to understand that 
Um, perhaps that moment can be transformative for everyone when it comes to questions of race, regardless of what you find out. I mean, that unpacking yeah. is cross-racial, too. My family is black and Filipino, yeah. and on my black side, we have a story that my great-grandmother was an Indian princess, was a Cherokee princess, and then my dad took this test yeah. and had to have a very hard convo with my grandfather about this not being true. Yeah. But the more we are unpacking of like, hey, I think that story in our family is not true, I do think that that pushes us towards something more truthful. Right. No one wants to find out they're not royal, right? Um, yeah. Okay, so let's move on just here for a second because um, I did want to talk about what this means from not just the context of like DNA testing, but what it may mean in a policy or a social context. Um, the Washington Post dug into this and found, I thought this was super interesting. From 2010 to 2020, the population of white identifying Americans fell by 19 million in the U.S. And yes, that was a lot of people who just oh, shuffled off their mortal coil, right? At the same time, uh, the number of people who uh, were mixed race grew by 25 million. But if you look at the people who identify as being uh, mixed race, something like 83% of them identify as white as part of that mixed race. So some of those people, you got to imagine in those 19 million people who used to identify as white are now identifying as something else, just like we saw in the earlier signal. Um, and, you know, they, they talked to some people who've gone through this, a man named Tony Luna, who changed his census ID from 2010 to 2020, who said it's a false choice. We never should have had to pick this in the first place. I'll note in Brazil, there's something like 50 different census choices as opposed to here where you get just, you know, the 10 um, or whatever. But my, my big question, I think, is um, what this means for policy, right? Especially as we talk about policy focused on social justice. And it reminded me a little bit of the conversation about two decades ago about coming out and trying to get better policy for people in the LGBTQ community, there was visibility that was needed before the policy change could happen. It's messed up, but that's what engendered that change. So, Christian, I'd love to bring you in here. I mean, do you see that kind of similar conversation? Do we need to be more open about mixed race before we can ask ourselves kind of policy questions uh, about this? Right. I, I think I think that has to be true. I think it yeah. does merit a sort of uh, awareness about mixed people and an awareness of how um, not just how race operates in the U.S., uh, it, uh, different from a place like Brazil or different from any other country, but also about like what it means to be mixed. And mm -hmm. even when we were talking about that data that informs a lot of this policy, we have to think about how we're interpreting these things. Totally. Um, because, you know, you can say that a good amount of the U.S. is mixed or like this is a really fast-growing population, but there's... there's and, I, and, and, and the thing that I, I don't want to boil it down to is like phenotype and how you look, but a lot, that's how you operate. That's how the world operates and, you know, yeah. how people will come up with these policies and they have their own biases that will uh, obviously feed into that. But I think that to really inform like really equitable policy, we really have to take a hard look at the history of colonialism, history of anti-blackness, history of slavery in the U.S. like at a really critical lens. But also we have to talk about what that means mm -hmm. in the age where blackness is very commodified and in a way yeah. that like it really hasn't been for a long time. And, you know, if we're seeing a bunch of people pop up and identify as mixed, what does that mean? How do we operate in the U.S. and like move about understanding race? But to inform policy, I think we do need to have a greater awareness of that. But I also think that there has to be that same awareness for even the monoracial groups that still don't get Total. that yes. adequate amount of policy to this day. Um, so I think it is necessary, but I think that we have a long way to go to get there. Yeah. Edward, do you have a quick take on this before we move on? Any thoughts about this idea of perhaps that connection between like openness and uh, open policy creation? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um all the new kind of science and information that's informing this conversation 
can actually muddle things, right? Because mm. to CJ's point earlier, like, this has never been scientific, <laughs> right? Yeah. So um, people have to have an ethical approach when they think about identity and know that just because something technically makes up a part of your identity doesn't mean it's your actual societal identity. Yeah, and I love that. It's such a key point. We are mixing, like, you know, uh, DNA testing, which is a a very scientific thing with the very pseudoscience of race. And so that is a Mm. fabulous tension to point out here. Um, Let's move on to this next signal about uh, influencers in the Latinx community. Debra? Yeah, our next signal comes from USA Today, and it looks at representation in mainstream culture. Uh, More specifically, media that includes people of multiple racial, culture, and ethnic backgrounds. Uh, The signal focuses on two Latinx people in particular, uh, Ren Fernandez-Kim and Ileana Ayala, uh, who both felt like there was never any proper representation of them on a screen. Um, And as many of us have seen, uh, you know, in this room have seen before, there's a huge media avoidance of showing Latinx faces of all races, skin tones, sizes, The list goes on. And this may or may not be why the 2020 U.S. Census reported that Latinx people who identified as other jumped from 37 percent to 42 percent, while people who identified as two or more races increased from 6 percent to 33 percent. So, Edward, I want to bring you in here. Uh, You work closely with uh, some of our social media clients. Um, How do you think media representation impacts how some people are choosing to identify themselves lately? Sure. I mean, you know, to your point, uh, social media is a game changer. Um, I don't think it takes onus off of big media to increase representation by any means, but it does do some important things in terms of allowing a greater conversation for other people to then see these groups with a little more nuance and a little more diversity, which then, of course, in turn impacts how someone self-identifies, right? Right. Um, I think, too, you know... Uh, this dilemma that many young bicultural, biracial people feel of choosing which camp to kind of settle in uh, is a little bit mitigated with social media, right? Because you're able to find your tribe a little bit more, which is a big power of social media. So that might kind of drive um, a greater interrogation or exploration of these more nuanced identities. Yeah, I think on the flip side of that, something that I worry about in terms of social media and media in general, what could be dangerous is cultural appropriation. And I think like the not the the Kim Kardashians of the world who are really heavily leaning on their otherness to validate hairstyles and, and fashion choices. I think that could be dangerous, but yeah. or exactly. all of TikTok. Right. 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 It's like I, I, I am I am trying to figure out how I get my algorithm to show me less yeah. groups of white boys doing dances, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> taking things from black culture. Right. So if anyone watching has advice on how to get the algorithm to stop showing me that, <laughs> I appreciate that. You might need to put your uh, phone away. Uh, <laughs> that might be the only way to do that. Um, let's move into one more signal here before we dive a little bit more into that question. Uh, about media and talk about the Afro-Indigenous population. Yeah, so our next signal um, is from High Country News writer Elena E. Roberts, who highlights an enlightening discussion from two scholars, uh, her and someone else, who firmly approached the history of the dynamic between African-American people and Native American people. Uh, The writer introduces their piece with a sort of philosophical gut punch to romantics who want to believe in their hearts that these two oppressed groups of people 
uh, learn to remain kindred with each other as a means to battle colonialism in America. However, Roberts, who is co-author of a book titled I've Been Here All the While, Black Freedom on Native Land, uses her own family's memories of being enslaved by and related to Chickasaw and Choctaw indigenous people to tell the story of black, native, and white settlement in what is now the state of Oklahoma. Uh, Robert says, quote, my research and my daily life are shaped by the fact that people with my background are not yet accepted by the Chickasaw or Choctaw nations as tribal citizens, despite treaty promises to the contrary. So this is where we bring in this, the second scholar in this piece, US, UCLA urban history and Afro-Indigenous scholar Kyle T. Mays, on the other hand, says that he feels rather welcomed in both of his communities, Black American and Saginaw Chippewa. Uh, In this signal, a conversation between the two historians goes on to emphasize that although their points of views differ, they are both rare in their own right, shedding light on crippling effects of white supremacy that have targeted marginalized folks time and time again, especially in this country. First and foremost, if we have the slightest hint of African descent uh, in our physical appearance, white supremacists jump at the opportunity to label and other us, which often sends us uh, our identities to or our other identities to fade into the background and society labels us black, period. Historically, we've also seen other marginalized groups adopt the uh, what I'm, I call the colonizer mindset mm. by discriminating against black people. So. Uh, my question is for Christian. Kyle T. May says that ultimately, uh, well, he says that, you know, when someone asks, what are you? They're actually asking, how legitimate are you? Right. So do you feel like society is getting away from or leaning into othering as a means to legitimize identity? Oh, wow. Um, I, I, I think that, um, first off, I think that that is a really great question. Um, second of all, I do think that we lean a lot into othering and we lean a lot into that. But especially in this age that like we talked about before, like with this commodification of blackness. But I also think anti-blackness itself is a global project and blackness has to be positioned yeah. as the other, the bottom, the lowest to position everything else on top of it. And I think with that, like, like you said, we have the experiences where there's other marginalized groups that are still anti-black because yeah that's absolutely possible like that's absolutely something that people experience all the time and um i actually my family is from oklahoma so this is something that um has not just impacted my family but impacted a lot of people that i knew growing up or knew growing up and i think that with the process of othering people just they want to find the simplest least Mm -hmm. complex solution which in itself is inherently white supremacist to assume that you can sanitize and compartmentalize and kind of silo anyone into one small thing and to not overcomplicate things to be Afri- to be have African American uh, heritage and also be indigenous is problematic to a lot of white people because it's hard for them to understand it's hard for them to conceptualize because then with that would have to come understandings of colonialism understandings of imperialism and in itself to have that mindset that to ask what you are is going to be a simple answer is in itself that kind of uh, that kind of colonizer mindset as you were talking about so I do 
do think that there is a lot of othering that does uh, happen inherently because we have to do that in order, or we we have to operate that way for white supremacy to continue. Um, And so I think that that's just something that really does operate here, especially when you talk about Afro-Indigenous people and people that even have like more than one, uh, maybe not close white proximity, like racial group that they might identify with. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to a couple signals here, because as I said, there's a lot going on in the media about this, right? That was the big, that was actually the big takeaway for me in our, in our Q search, was that so much of the mixed conversation was less about education or about demographics, which is kind of what I expected, but really came down to, like, representation. Um, and uh, now that we can kind of prove out, the, you know, this mixed heritage via these simple DNA tests, uh, we need to see more of that, uh, that represented. So I wanted to highlight two signals here. So let's start with The Vanishing Half, uh, a major best seller book uh, by author Britt Bennett. According to the Wall Street Journal uh, article here from 2020, The Vanishing Half opens uh, in 1950s Louisiana town that has cultivated a population of very light-skinned uh, black children and how they use that skin color to exist in the world. Quote, the book is cinematic in its storytelling, a work of literary fiction that has made multiple best-of lists and attracted celebrity fans. Um, and basically, while it's a bona fide hit, it also does a really good job of talking about the conversation of passing, which, for those who don't know, it is the idea that uh, when the context demands it, if you are mixed race or even not that mixed race, you just have that different phenotype, you can sort of present yourself as one race or another. It is almost always a defense mechanism against things like white supremacy. Um, But it is the crux of this book, right? Um, And I wanted to highlight this other uh, place. So we're moving from the bookstore here to um, the silver screen where British actor Rebecca Hall, she was in Vicky Cristina Barcelona and a couple other major movies, um, debuted a a movie called Passing that's set in the 1920s in New York um, and uh, addresses this sort of question um, uh, starring uh, Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. Um, Hall was drawn to the story because uh, actually her maternal grandfather was almost certainly African-American, but lived his life passing as white. And so she's always had this sort of unique interest in, in this. And uh, the uh, movie just debuted uh, in theaters last week, and I think you can watch it net- next week on Netflix if you're interested. So, CJ, I, my, my, my question for you is, because I'm going to ask you as sort of our, our media expert, our resident filmmaker uh, or, or storyteller, what is it about the passing narrative that feels so dramatic, that feels so um, prescient for people who are maybe just addressing sort of being mixed race for the first time, but loving this book by, uh, this book by Britt Brit Bennett. Uh, it's being added to like every, you know, middle-aged mom's book club, uh, which I think is great, but it also has questions about why we react to stories like that so intensely. And I'm curious um, what your guess might be at that. Yeah, it's vi- passing stories are very of the moment right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking also of Lovecraft Country, mm-hmm. where there was a, a storyline of what it is like to be a black person who has the ability to take a potion and live their day as a white person. So I think it is, I think it is a fascination with the idea of, wow, what if your blackness was a choice? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it is a fascination with... I think it is less a fascination with the permeability of a category yeah. and more fascination of... What if you could navigate? What if, what if you could choose whiteness yeah. a, a, as a, as a choice? Right. And I think the helpful part of that is, you know, shining light on the ways that people of many different races have to navigate and feel drawn towards the benefits of whiteness and being able to choose the privileges of whiteness. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is some sort of there's something tricky about it that that. I think that there is something that I don't trust about our fascination about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
that that it is it is almost romantic yeah. about like wow and you're saying she was black the whole time <laughs> right right, right? D- d- does anyone else feel that mm-hmm. that that this is a lived reality but i also think it is one that is full of a lot of tragedy and a lot of pain and a lot of people being forced to do something in order to be embodied and survive in the world and i don't trust that not saying anything about these projects, but I don't trust that an audience's hunger for these stories doesn't come from a place of weird sort of fetishizing. It, yeah. I, I, I find it as well to be very kind of that, that obsession with passing, mm-hmm. um, not even just in the racial context, but also in a gendered context. There's a very huge uh, collective societal kind of attention to transgender people in passing. Yep. And this concept of passing, this, con- this concept of being able to assimilate or disguise yourself as the powerful group, as the, as the, the supremacy group is a very... It, it, it permeates into something that's I, I I don't really trust either, and like I haven't seen this. I watched the trailer and I found it to be very cinematically beautiful. Yeah. I would love to watch it when it comes out on Netflix. However, there is something about it that's just like, why is there such a call to this? I also think for a lot of white audiences, that proximity to whiteness is in themselves what they want to see and and like people don't want to talk about that but there's a reason why there's like huge amounts of biracial and mixed representation that gets carded as black just because like Mm -hmm. someone in there is black when there is hardly any like little to none dark skin representation and I think this is something that audiences are pushing to see and also have like this fascination with mixed people there's always been a fetishism for mixed people there's a lot of people that want to have mixed babies and it's something that the that the world really does gravitate to and i don't trust it and it's something that i i can't say that about this piece i can't say that about the books because i i haven't indulged in them like that but i do really feel like we have to address this with a very particular uh investigation of why it is that you are so uh, attracted to the concept that a person can choose or a person is passing. And then also in the trailer, there's this moment where both of the characters, one of the main characters is the white passing one. One of them uh, kind of continues to live her life as a, as a black person because she she can't pass as white, even though they are both mixed or both biracial. And there's this moment where they kind of have this conversation where it's like, oh, we wish we had each other's lives. The white girl is like, uh, or the, the white passing girl is married to someone who is a white supremacist, mm-hmm. hates black people, and the black girl wishes that she had the power to, you know, assimilate and be able to move about the world as a white person. And I think with that comes something problematic where it comes like this false equivalency of like, oh, we all just want to be what we can't. But then again, if you would ask anyone in this room right now if you would want to be black in the 1920s, I'm pretty sure that I could give you an absolute answer on that. So it's something that with these narratives, we have to be very, very careful. I also just think that kind of preponderance of wanting to create more of this is problematic and is a a source of fetishism. I think a lot of it, um, I I agree. And to add to that, I think it is definitely rooted in an internalized self-hatred that was adopted by the colonial mindset and colonialism and imperialism. Um, You know, white settlers, white people have always historically taught people who didn't look like them to hate themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, uh, relaxers are a thing and blue contacts and all these things and, and skin bleaching creams and things that can somehow diminish or erase blackness. You know, people, there is inherited trauma generation after generation that hasn't 
fully been worked through. Yeah. And I think that's the test. It's like yeah. the, our focus on passing stories, are they going to enable us to talk about that? Right. Mm-hmm. Or do they become reductionist to like, dang, she looks white in that scene. Right. right. Exactly. Right? And it's yeah. like, if we can go towards that, yeah. yes, let's go. But yeah. but I, I love your, your push about what is the fantasy that we are hungering for when we come to this story. Not, not what created it, but as audiences, when we're like, yes, like what is that? It's like that right. fetishized lens of, of while we are so, like white people or whiteness centering itself as well, look at how far they're chasing it. Exactly. Look at how far that they're trying to get here. Yeah. And it's something that I just can't help but feel is like, you know, like oh, she wants to be me so bad. Like, so, like it, it, yeah. it, it's a it's a weird type of uh, fantasy like that. And I I think that that's an excellent point that you made, and I think that's an excellent point as well. We really have to investigate these and what their motives are. It's almost like an absurdist game show. Like, who wants to be me? Exactly. Right. exactly. What would you do to be white for a day? Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, how do we keep those stories from becoming that weird but, game show? So let me ask you just a really quick question to wrap this up, because this is a freaking fascinating conversation. I mean, is the question then to avoid the stories altogether, because I think you're, I think Christian's right, I think it does lead into some fetishization, or is the question to ask writers uh, like Rebecca Hall, or I know Zendaya at least was attached to a book about a passing woman who went to Vassar College, the book was written by a woman who was half Asian, half white, and so I think it was some of her exploring her own experience in college about that. So is the question, just avoid the stories because they're problematic and they lead to some messiness, or is it make sure that everyone involved in the story comes to it honestly and probably with a mixed background because we want, because we want to give people the, the space to explore. We, we don't want to say people don't explore this sort of question of yourself. I think it's pretty fundamental for someone, Rebecca Hall, to want to understand what her grandfather went through when you were saying he had to force to erase his blackness. But I guess my question is, is, um, is this a question of, uh, of production or a question of just avoiding it all together? I think it's a question of rigor. I think it's, yeah. I think it's just from, from, you know, and again, this is not about the, the, the creation of the work. This is about the interaction with the audience. But mm. are, are the things that we are making in this racial moment... Mm-hmm. Are they making us have rigorous conversations or romantic conversations that that build on all of the tropes that we have of a white supremacist entertainment industry, right? Is it like, wow, we all want to live someone else's life? Or wouldn't it be great to drop the baggage for a day? Or is it a rigorous conversation about the demands of whiteness? One of the best documentaries ever made is Paris is Burning Mm -hmm. for how it talks about the demands of of realness and and the absurdity of what it means to pass as a straight person Mm -hmm. and and the absurdity of that chase. So all of these things can be really productive if they lead us to a rigorous conversation about what the chase requires. Yeah. yeah, it's also like why, how, how many dark skin narratives are you, are you creating as well? How many dark skin narratives are you producing as well? And if mm-hmm. you're going to center blackness or say that you, uh, which I know a lot of these companies do, they, they, they pilot their diversity programs. They say, we love black people. We love black media. I, this cannot be like the highest producing, most grossing thing unless you knew that you were creating it for that engagement alone. And you just have to question the motives on part of that and on part of why it is that this movie is doing so well from a societal lens and institutional lens. And even yep. as every person watches it, their own personal lens. It demands a level, and shout out to the Equity Report, which is literally about this. I think it demands a level of expertise at every level of vetting the project, of talking to the writers. I'm sitting here thinking about how do you avoid, because to me, this these are stories of grand tragedy. And that's, I think, 
what we want to avoid, maybe, that we want them to feel human and not like there's some melodrama. And that means probably picking a someone to write the score who is a person of color. Yes. That means finding a cinematographer who has worked, who understands but, how to shoot different skin tones. I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking this at every level. Sorry. Yes, no. but yeah. I think that it's, uh, we have to, we as in, especially the onus is on white people to stop thinking of just checking a box. Employ this black person for that. Employ this black person for that. But also to connect with them on a human level and realize, like, to your point earlier, whiteness is a myth. Mm-hmm. And you're, in fact, if, you, if you're realizing you're in the boardroom, in the writer's room, and you realize that you need these other perspectives, connect with the person first on a human level. Yeah. Um, guys, this is a fabulous uh, conversation. Um, which signal would you like to do next? We can do, yeah. Should we do this one? Yeah. Okay, so we've talked a lot about adults, I think, and recognizing uh, kind of their story, but obviously we can't have this conversation without talking about what it's like to be a mixed-race kid because they're also popping up uh, anywhere and everywhere. So tell us, it's kind of a hard pivot, but tell us about uh, what American Girl is doing. We can lighten the conversation a little bit. Yeah, yeah, so American Girl has a new line of dolls called World by Us that aims to take inclusion and diversity to the next level. Uh, while the popular toy... Uh, and Doll Line already features dolls of various skin tones, eye color, and hair color. This, this Signal's author says that World by Us will be, quote, opening a whole new world of opportunities for learning and acceptance. Um, and what makes it so unique is that this World by Us line uh, will be a doll and book line. Uh, it'll be centered on three characters, Makina, Yvette, and Maritza, who each come with their own stories um, to involve social injustices. <clears throat> Sorry, such as racial inequity, environmentalism, and immigration. Uh, the smart business play here to me is uh, since the three stories intertwine, a customer is obligated to buy all of them. That's smart. The article suggests that it might be a great opportunity for parents with three children, for example, or, you know, who has a child in a friend group of three, uh, and each of them want to own an important part of the narrative. Uh, the main themes of this line are fairness, friendship, respect, and inclusion. Uh, to me, this could possibly be a modern iteration of uh, this classic Coke print ad called Boys on a Bench, uh, which features young white and black boys sitting together on a segregated bench, uh, I think back in the 60s. It was the first of its kind, and you know it'll always go down in history for its impact on inclusion. Uh, so Edward, I want to toss this question to you. Um, how might other brands or agencies piggyback off of American Girl's concept, pulling real-world elements of social justice into a package that looks like just playtime. Yeah, it's it's a delicate dance, it looks like, and it's something I don't think we would have seen, you know, one year ago, if not 10 years mm-hmm. ago. Um, I think one interesting thing is that there is proof, right, that brands can catch back up with the zeitgeist, mm-hmm. uh, which is good news for a lot of brands. I think <laughs> we saw that, ironically, with Barbie, strangely. Um I think the other thing, too, in trying to infuse diversity into what your business provides to the world, I think you have to think about whether you can do that by just expanding your portfolio or completely scrapping your core offering. I think with this example, like we can think about dolls being role-playing, being critical for empathy, right? Suddenly, this thing that seems quite trivial is actually kind of deep. Um, And then I just think the third point probably is that um, particularly with children, which parents are very sensitive about when it comes to social issues, right? Um, you have to take on board the risk that if you want to 
win customers through values, you have to be prepared to lose some, right? Mm -hmm. There are going to be a lot of unhappy parents (laughs) about this quote-unquote indoctrination as it's sometimes framed in conservative media. Um, so that's just the, the the flip side of this coin. Right. Yep. Yeah. So let's look at one other uh, lifestyle signal here. I thought this was really cool and kind of maybe an under-discussed uh, subject. It's funny because I, I know we've talked about this a little bit with our clients before. I don't think we've ever talked about this in the briefing. So, Debra, tell us about the connection between, uh, say, you know, our new mixed-race uh, America and the great outdoors. Uh, yeah, diving into this next signal, it's from uh, Women's Health Mag. So Shanice, a.k.a. Soul, describes their first breakthrough from a solo adventure hiking through Seattle. Uh, Soul says, quote, at first I hated being alone with my thoughts, but as time went on, I realized that I could think or say anything I felt out in the wilderness and that the trees and plants were there to just receive it all. Uh, so basically, she, she this person is trauma dumping on nature, but, you know, I'm here for it. Uh, so <laughs> nature go- doesn't mind. <laughs> so goes on to celebrate uh, her solo nature excursions by saying that it has given her the, quote, confidence that my younger self uh, would never think was possible. She'd be in tears to see how strong and adventurous I am now. And now their mission, Soul's mission, is to help other marginalized people uh, like them, a a mixed-race person, to see the beauty of the outdoors. Um, Immediately when I read this signal, I was reminded that, you know, my decision to never learn to swim came from an an inherited trauma and a stigma that I grew up with having relaxed hair uh, starting at age four and just being told by my black mother, never go near the water, right? So I never grew up learning how to swim. And it's so much deeper than me just being afraid of swimming, right? Or afraid of sinking. I didn't want to get my hair wet. (laughs) So... Edward, I'm going to ask you this question. Uh, how did this signal make you feel? And what do you think we can all learn from Soul's uh, public adoration for the great outdoors and destigmatizing certain hobbies from our personal framework? Yeah, no, I, I feel you on what you just said. It's, um, I think those moments in childhood stand out and are so glaring and jarring even years later, right? Because there are these spaces, public spaces, right? Hiking, Mount, yeah. we're not talking about polo. Like, this is like, <laughs> this in theory should be quite democratic. Um, you know, that are that these spaces and activities are somehow politicized. Um, and I think in the, in the case of this person's uh, example, it's interesting. I mean, it just throws in stark relief her kind of dilemma growing up biculturally or biracially, right? I'm sure she... One half of her feels a claim to activities like this, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Through one half of her, her, her background and the other completely cut off from it. So, yeah, it's jarring. It's, it's just very, I like that we're ending <laughs> kind of our conversation on a positive note. It's very heartwarming to see this kind of come full circle for someone like her and for right. potentially many others. So there's a group in L.A. that we definitely talked about with uh, a client called the Hike Club, which uh, is a uh, hiking club uh, for women uh, of all different races to kind of reclaim some of these spaces everywhere from like Runyon Canyon, which is mostly just people taking Instagrams, to like the real, you know, sort of deep wilderness of the Angeles National Forest. And it's very cool because, you know, the founders are uh, at least, you know, there's several mixed race members. It is physically mixed race in that it 
is people of, you know, Latin and black and indigenous backgrounds who are all trying to find a little bit of uh, a little more comfort uh, in spaces that they want to explore, but maybe didn't necessarily feel comfortable before. And I, I think that's such an interesting, I don't know, I see this as such an interesting metaphor in some ways for our whole conversation today about reclaiming space yeah. for people who are mixed. Because, I mean, clearly, you know, they've always been here, right? Uh, we're, you know, um, and this is like literally someone doing that. And I love the term nature, uh, trauma dumping on nature. <laughs> but I think it's okay for now. CJ, what is your take on this? I'm just curious about this idea of, you know, uh, it's it's hard enough to reclaim space when you come from one ethnic background. It's got to be an order of magnitude harder when it's two. And I'm just curious a little bit about where this all intersects with um, this, you know, these lifestyle quests, yeah. these spaces that we want to exist uh, as our whole selves. I am all for the trauma dumping on nature, <laughs> throwing shade at trees. I <laughs> they throw shade, you throw shade. <laughs> it's cyclical, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think... <laughs> Uh, I'm of two minds. One, it's so absurd that we even have to reclaim nature. Right. That that was ours. <laughs> we showed white people what nature was. I mean, Columbus's first reaction was like, dang, these people love nature out here when he found us. <laughs> right? Like indigenous people, mm-hmm. slavery. Like you we had to be enslaved to show Lewis and Clark how to hike. Right? Like indigenous people have been hiking forcibly to their deaths. Like the outdoors was always ours. And the idea that even, you know, when I'm talking to friends and it's like, oh, I'm going on a date hiking. And it's like, oh, you love the white stuff. Like the idea that we (laughs) think of hiking and the outdoors and canoeing and camping and all of these things as white activities is the height of absurdity because that's what we were all doing before colonialism. Right. So the, uh, the, the positive for me, though, is the idea that, like, I think especially now and after the year that we've had, when we think about doing the work, a lot of it is like, we must be in the streets, we must be fighting for our lives, we must be facing down police officers, but there are things like this that it's like, no, that's about you living like a whole life, Mm -hmm. and that is also still reparative and restorative and making us safe in in the world, that doesn't that that isn't requiring you to always be in the struggle. Right. Like, this is a type of struggle that is also really healing, and, and I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, you can only do the work if you have a little time off to not do the work, yes. right? Yes. Um, I love that, and I think that's a perfect place to end this really, really great conversation. Thank you, Devry, Christian, Edward, of course, CJ, and thank you guys for joining today, too. You can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on our LinkedIn page. While you're there, jump in the comment section. Let us know what you're thinking, feeling, your perspectives on on this just like really fascinating subject and i love a conversation that takes on a life of its own so well done everybody um if you're interested in q uh, the cultural intelligence platform we use to build today's briefing it gives incredible insights on really deep topics so please feel free to reach out and i'd also recommend that you check out the equity report you can get that at reports.sparksandhoney.com it touches on a number of subjects that we discussed today so uh yeah until tomorrow consider yourselves briefed 